So before we get started on book four of this series, I have to ask you a question and you're going to be given six choices in the spirit of American Girl. I'm ready. Let's do it. This book is focused on a disease. So by way of getting us to there, I'm going to ask you to choose which cluster of songs you would want to live in for the rest of your life if these were your choices. You can either live in a world that's the only songs you can hear are Yellow by Coldplay, mm-hmm. Yellow Submarine by the Beatles, mm. or anything Yellow Card, just because that's what I've decided. Or you have to listen to these these three choices on loop. Fever by Peggy Lee, Fever by the Black Keys, and the entire Fever album by Megan Thee Stallion. Oh my god, that's really hard. I like yeah. the energy of Megan Thee Stallion's album because I feel like there's some high moments, some upbeat moments. In high school, I was like very into Coldplay's first album for a brief period of time and listened to it on a loop. So I feel like I've lived that and I don't know if I can go back there. Yes. Uh, I'm going to pick the Black Keys, but just know I don't feel great about my future with that (laughs) choice. I don't think anyone feels great about putting Yellow Fever as the series of choices, but that's what American Girl did. So here we are. Here we are. I really did listen to Yellow for like that whole album on a loop in high school. Like for real. You're taking me back now. And I remember like he said that he just randomly opened a book and it said Yellow. And that's why he Mm -hmm. called the song that in some ways. Supposedly he wrote it very quickly. Well, I mean, in some ways it's like, was this book conceived and written in a similar style? Hard to say find out we'll find out well welcome everyone to american girls the podcast this is the show where we're reliving the american girl series book by book i'm mary i'm still allison and still allison how are you what's new and exciting so yellow by coldplay was actually the aesthetic of my myspace (laughs) and my live journal so that was my my framing device for both of those uh profiles that i had so I would not be choosing that. I I also find like the aura of Yellow Submarine disturbing. There's nothing wrong with it. I just don't think I could live in that chaos. Okay, um, fair. But I would happily live in a Black Keys album. Like I would live in the El Camino cover. I think that works. I mean, to me, it's like it's too it's too like too much of a male space for me long yes. term. I'm troubled by Yellow Submarine because I watched the movie as a child and they don't actually voice themselves in the movie. No. So I've had an issue with that. Um, I'm a huge Beatles person. Like, I understand that's basic and problematic and I don't care. But yeah, that's where I'm coming from. I, like, Yellow is your MySpace theme. Is that because it could mean anything? So it's like your page could take, like, it could follow you with whatever whims you have or you drop or you take up in the like course of having a MySpace? No, so my profile picture for a while on various platforms was Chris Martin and 
and it was all yellow was like my tag. Like you had to have a tagline to introduce because Coldplay was the first band, the first music that I actually liked for myself. It wasn't like something someone else liked and said, oh, I think you might enjoy this. So oh. I used to listen to yellow on the bus almost every single day. So really? I that was my whole that was like my whole thing. So thinking about this book, Troubles for Cecile, mm-hmm. I was thinking, okay, nobody really wants to talk about yellow fever on lap three of this pandemic that we're living through. So let me just break it apart and and find other things for us to talk about. We will talk about this book, but it got me thinking of how much like fever is used in songs. And here we are. I can't sit with Coldplay right now because the yellow (laughs) fever of it all. I mean, instead, just to heal myself, I might either have to watch Gwyneth Paltrow's Architectural Digest Open Door Tour, Mm. which is iconic and very strange. Or Dakota Johnson awkwardly taking down Ellen DeGeneres for not for acting as if she was not invited to her birthday party, which is still an iconic exchange, although mm, too awkward for me right now. What about Yellow Card? What do you think of them? Um, I think about like working in grad school and I had a co- like an undergrad coworker and we were grad students at that point. So she was like cooler than me. And she was extremely into Yellow Card. And I heard Ocean Avenue like every day for an entire summer. And it's still like, you know, still a bop, still into it. But I'm also like, this isn't like I've reached my limit of Yellow Card. But I do really like them. I, I'm fine with that. Are you a fan of theirs? No, but it takes me back to a different epoch of reality television. And I was starting. So one of my favorite TikTok stars, I am going to call her a star, um, had her nuptials last week. And I was wow. like, why do I know this? What, how has this person come into my life? And I think what's fascinating about Laguna Beach and even real wow. world, obviously real world was like a whole other immersive level, yes. is those people were learning how to be reality TV stars in real time. And I think what's happening now on platforms like TikTok and even still YouTube to some degree, people are learning how to be social media stars in real time. Mm. And I like the unpolishedness of some of it. And I miss that sort of Kristen Cavallari, that whole kind of world. That's what Yellow Card makes me think of. Like people have been putting those old MTV reality TV clips back on the web. Like Jessica Simpson and Nick Lachey's like Dirty House, you know, when they like didn't hire. That's too a dark maid. for me. Can't no, go there I know. With you. But you know, but yes. if only they had had Ellen, the maid in this book, or if Ellen had had them, perhaps things would end differently. I know we're not getting into troubles for Cecile, but this book gave me troubles, so you're all going to experience it with me. I'm in a very troubled place, Allison. That's all I can say to you. And Can I just say this? Yeah. If you call a book troubles and you kill the Irish character, we need to have a conversation. I'm serious. I mean, yeah, it... It's bleak. And, you know, is it tone deaf? And, like, are we recording this just days before um, St. Patrick's Day? Yeah. And, you know, I'm in a place about it. I'll just say that. But, yeah, I mean, there needs to be some education. Um, It's Women's History Month and it's Irish American Heritage Month. And Ellen does not make it out of this book alive. She does not. And that's a friendly reminder to all of our listeners who identify as women that, you know, now is your time. Like, you can take on anyone in your life and just say to someone with total seriousness and conviction, how dare you speak to me that way? It's Women's History Month. Period. Yeah. Yeah. 
I've I've brought that out. I mean, that's kind of what I want to say to this book. Like, how dare you treat me this way? First of all, I'll say, like, I'm reading this book as my parents both have COVID. And so that definitely added an element to their proceedings. And it was stressful to read this and also be thinking about my parents who are fully vaccinated and boosted and still got COVID and are on the mend, but nonetheless, like, stressful. So, yeah, this whole thing is stressful. And I also want to just before we jump into this book, give you a moment of joy, Allison, and tell you about something I did this weekend that was, you know, a time machine, like very few people (laughs) like I'm not a historic reenactor. I don't do living history. And yet this weekend I went to 90s con for one day and it was, you know, I I went back in time. I'll say that. And, you know, you brought up real world and I I'm a huge fan of early real world, not like seasons one and two. But I'm talking about iconic seasons like you were saying of Laguna Beach, like before people figured out how to like be famous on this show, like New Orleans, Hawaii, Boston. Mm. Um, those those seasons are really my favorite. And, you know, the spouse of one of my favorite stars, Kelly, from the New Orleans season of Real World, which is not on Paramount TV. And I'm very upset about that was at 90s con i have never been to a comic con um before in my life or like a thing like that so this was really eye-opening to me on many many levels first of all scott wolf was there and everyone is like oh my god scott wolf party of five and i'm like excuse me um you iconically (laughs) married kelly from real world new orleans care to discuss (laughs) but what i didn't understand like i had to kind of learn the ways of these kind of events and you can like pay to take a selfie with a celebrity you can pay to have a meet and greet with them you can pay to have like a photo taken of you i am uncomfortable with every single one of those options Mm. that's not for me i accidentally went to astasi what i thought was a book reading ended up (laughs) getting my photo taken with her and that friend came with us to 90s con and decided to kind of get on a back in a sense because she escaped from that situation wisely and Anna's favorite show growing up was Full House. And Full House, after we had decided to go to this, was like, we're going to, you know, some of the cast was going to be there. So this friend contacted me on the side and was like, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we got Anna like a photo op with some cast members from Full House? And I was like, you know, yes. And I enjoy being married to her. And like, I want that to continue. So I'm scared. So I sent her a text a week ago. I was like, is this my last week being married to Anna? Like, is she, when she finds this out, I don't know how this is going to go. So the way we decided to deliver this news was I wrote her a letter as Candace Cameron Bray. Nice. And keep in mind, days before, I'm like trying to feel her out. I'm like, hey, um, Full House is going to be here. Like, thoughts on that? I'm like, are you excited about the cast? It was like Uncle Joey, Kimmy, Steve, and DJ. That's who was showing up. And she was like, well, I'm kind of disappointed because, like, um, Stephanie's my favorite character and then Uncle Jesse, obviously, and they weren't going to be there. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, Kimmy Gibbler, that's cool. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, Andrea's cool. I don't know. Like, she got a degree in women's studies. And I was like, yeah, and like Candace, like, a.k.a. DJ. Again, I've seen Full House, but I'm not a stan. And Candace Cameron Bray scares me, just like real talk. And she was like, I really wish Comet was going to be there instead of Candace. Oh. <laughs> And at that point, I'm like, I'm about to die. Like, I'm close to death. So I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I don't know how this is going to go. So then I write a letter, like, because I'm just unhinged at this point in my life. So I write a letter, and I'm pretending. I'm trying to step into the shoes of Candace Cameron Bure. And I'm like, hey, listen, I heard you're disappointed that Comet's not going to be there, and I am. (laughs) So I hope we can work this out and, like, take a picture together. And Anna was like, I don't think pleased that this was happening, but she went with it. (laughs) 
So when we arrived, it was like half of this convention hall was like this big aisle, two aisles you could walk down. And like you could literally see all these stars from the 90s who were like waiting at a booth to sign autographs and stuff. So being a cheapskate and also afraid of that kind of contact, I could walk through and I was like, oh, my God, there's Melissa Joan Hart, like crazy. (laughs) There's Caroline Ray. There's Scott Wolf, a.k.a. Mr. Kelly from Real World New Orleans. Then we go and we're like, oh, my God, it's time to take the picture. Allison, the amount of money people are dropping at this convention. I'm not familiar with this life. okay? and people are like going through the lines like you you line up in an aisle. They're like aisle four for Candace and Andrea. So we're standing there (laughs) and like these VIPs are like going through one lane and they come back and it's like, oh, they've paid for multiple photos with like Christopher Lloyd from Back to the Future or Scott Wolf or Mm -hmm. Nick Carter. Some of the Backstreet Boys were there. Joey Fatone was like late, but he arrived on Sunday. I guess I wasn't there. So we go and I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to say to these people? Like, I'm so freaked out. I gave on my Golden Girls T-shirt so she'd have something 90s specific. She, we go in. It's like 10 seconds. You And they're like, do not talk to them. No <laughs> yeah. speaking, no touching, no kissing, no groping. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is dark because they must say that because people have done that. Oh, yeah. And these little girls were like just ahead of us in line and they like went to hug Candace. And one of the staff members was like, no touching. And it was like terrifying. (laughs) So in that moment of like, I think I just like blacked out and we took this picture. I don't look great. Anna looks very good. I'm happy for her. I feel like we should just crop Abby and I out of it. We would be fine with that. But Andrea (laughs) seems like a total sweetie pie and like Candace is like fine. I don't I don't know them and I feel like I didn't really need them. But Candace did say she was like, whoa, Golden Girls, love your T-shirt to Anna. So I was like, Anna, you know, you did get that piece you of did. it. You did. And that you was did. good because the pan, they all, the other half of it is like going to panels with shows. So we went to like the Boy Meets World one and the Full House one. The Boy Meets World ones are like pros. I could tell they've done this many times and they're like bopping around answering questions. They have their sound bites. Full House was a disaster. And I'm putting all of this <laughs> at the feet of Can- um, Christy Carlson Romano, who hosted all the panels. Oh, Okay, Allison, would you feel comfortable hosting a panel for a show you've clearly never seen in your life? No, but I think Christy Carlson Romano, because she's about to turn 40, she's like launching her own renaissance and nothing yes. will hold her back. Well, I know that because I see her on the internet all the time. Yes. And you know what? I celebrate her, like her vivaciousness, <laughs> like she's so game, she's out here. And apparently like her parents um, mismanaged her money, so she has no money. So she's like... That Disney Channel money is like gone. So she has to right. get out here and hustle. Like, I totally respect that. And she also was hosting every panel all weekend. I only went to one day of this, which was more than enough for me. But like TLC was going to be there or TC, R-I-P-L, <laughs> um, the next day and like boy band. So she was having a lot of prep to do. But she gets right. up there and it was like, uh, it was like someone doing a book report on a book they hadn't read. And they're like, um... Yeah, so guys, wow, this must be crazy for you all to be here right now and like just reconnecting and like (laughs) wild. And then at one point she was like, yeah, so anything you guys want to promote? And Candace jumps on this and is like, my clothing line is exclusive to QVC. And I was like, that feels right. It's named after her, (laughs) also feels right. She's like, I also want to turn people on to Jesus. I have my own devotionals. Uh, they're for sale on my Instagram and such. And then she was like, and I also really, I want to promote the Bible. And she was like, you know, I do need to say, like, I did not write that. And Candace Cameron Bray reminding the crowd that she is, in fact, not the author of the Bible was my favorite moment from 90s Con. 
Well, she got sort of chastised because she was promoting the Bible as if it was sort of like her product on TikTok because oh, she see, does I don't the know devotionals. Oh, wow. And okay. so she has kind of created, as many people do, right? I mean, like King James, he did it. Sure. Right? Like people have different versions of the text. Of course. So, but I, I think that might be part of what she's explaining. Got like it. she's Makes saying like, sense. get a Bible first and then get on QVC or get on her website. Got it. And you know what? Like, she and Andrea plays Kimmy. They seem like they're genuinely friends. And also the Mm -hmm. guy who plays Steve, like, I don't remember his name. I'm sorry, Steve. You know who you are. But I was offended for him when Christy Carlson Romano hits him with somebody was like, well, of course, like, he was Aladdin. Because he was the voice of Aladdin. And she was like, oh, my God, I'm sorry. Were you the voice of Aladdin? And I'm like, and this is moment 10 when I would have had you removed (laughs) from the panel. You don't know basic facts, ma'am. There's too many gaps in the IMDb pages of too many of the participants for her to be expected to keep up with all of this. So I I think that's part of it. Um, You know, to quote Cecile herself, don't treat me as if I'm a baby. You know, I think that kind of, you know, that's that's a classic 90s approach. The darkest thing I saw at 90s con was walking down the aisle and like, there's gobs of people to meet Nick Carter. There's gobs of people to meet Melissa Joan Hart, who iconically brought her own selfie lighting, where she was like, <laughs> the lighting here is bad. I'm doing my own thing. Then I'm walking down and I'm like, oh, Scott Wolf. And I like see him and I'm like, wow, he looks amazing. And he's alone and there's nobody oh. at his booth. And this girl walks up and she's like, hi, um, are you open? And then meekly hands him something to sign. He's like, yeah, I am. And I'm like, this is dark, bro. Like, I just, wow, I'm not made for these times. It was weird to go back in time to a version of the 90s. But it was, you know, maybe like too soon for me in a sense. I I think so. That's all I can say. It's like I've experienced nostalgia as a disease, if you will. (laughs) And then I came home and I read this book. And that was something altogether different but also terrifying are you prepared to go back to august 30th 2011 no, the release date of this book? not absolutely I'm taking not us there no <laughs> so if you've been following along with us this series is unlike any of the other ones in that friends or best friends are not just sort of important side characters this is a divided series where two friends each get three books right so this is this is very different. Um, so this book is Troubles for Cecile, and it is set in July of 1853. So, so far, we've kind of gone from the early part of this year into this summer, and things are about to get really bad. I'll give us kind of the overview, and then we're going to have to talk about specific plot points right from the start, oh just if you haven't read this book, because it is pretty packed. There's a lot going on. Yeah, lot, lots of ground to cover, lots of characters to kill off. Yeah. Not a lot of time. So we learn Cecile Summer is off to a glowing start. The glow is actually like the sweat from the fever of the others around her. But she loves spending time with her older brother, Armand, who is finally home from France. And she and her friend, Marie Grace, enjoy helping at a nearby orphanage playing with children. But a shadow falls over the bright summer when Cecile hears that a terrible sickness, yellow fever, is spreading in New Orleans. When yellow fever strikes in her own home, Cecile is more afraid than she has ever been. Can she find the strength to help when her family needs her the most? Can we find the strength to discuss this book? No. So 
I'm going to rewrite the title of this book to be The Gaslighting of a Girl and a City. (laughs) I'm interested. Tell me more. So part of what happens in this book, which I think does feel pretty true to life, having, you know, all of us been living through an epidemic that became a pandemic, Cecile is flagging problems in much the same way that Marie Grace was flagging problems like, hey, there seem to be fewer people out in the streets. Hey, there seem to be a lot more funerals. There's a lot more mourning crepe all over people's houses. Huh, my brother doesn't seem to be doing very well. And she's told things like everything will be fine. She feels as though she's being treated as sort of like a baby. She's trying to reassure herself that the family is going to be safe. They go to a picnic and notice that there's not that many people there. And unlike Marie Grace, who lives with a physician, I feel like Cecile is asking all the right questions and is being totally shut down. Yeah, her panic is, she's not panicking. She's asking informed questions that are Mm -hmm. clearly causing her anxiety. And it it just feels like gaslighting and condescension that you might, that some adults feel comfortable using with kids to basically shut them up and be like, nope, you're dreaming that. Nope, everything's fine. And I think it's a misread of what is needed in this situation, which is like just honesty and information. And, you know, trusting that Cecile could adjust to having an honest conversation with her parents or her brother, like her brother big time gaslights her and he's like, what's the problem? Okay, fascinating scene. Um, So, you know, iconic movie of our childhood was Titanic, where there's the notion of, like, paint me like one of your French girls. Wow. Cecile's being painted by her brother, and her brother is adding things into the painting that she's not wearing or she's not doing, and she asks a question about this, and he says to her, artists see things differently than you do. And I guess, like, I just feel for this girl because I think she's very confused. She had this very close relationship with her brother who's been away. She has an extended family living with them, and people don't seem to really be talking about very much. Marie Grace, conversely, has this, like, really strong sense from her father, like, when he does parent her 10 minutes a week of why she should, why she's probably okay, right? Like, she's probably okay because she's already had this thing that other people are worried about. Cecile is fighting for her life. She's asking questions. And amidst all of this, she's sitting for a never-ending portrait from her brother, who's just come back from France. He thinks he's hoodwinking the entire family into believing he doesn't want to be an artist while not having a job and only painting his sister. (laughs) Yes. And the opening (laughs) scene, it's like, it's insane that he thinks that no one can follow this. And it's funny because there's the opening scene to me is about like things hidden in plain sight. So the opening, mm. literally the opening image is of a fly on the tip of her nose that she swats away. And then she's like scratching and her brother's like, sit still, I'm trying to paint you, girl. And it's like, okay, and you're trying to do this covertly in our parents' like front or backyard, <laughs> like in full yeah. view of everyone. It's just, and he's like, shh, don't tell, girl. She was like, I think mom and dad should see your painting. And he's like, girl no not the time no and so it's weird that it's like of course yellow fever is caused by mosquitoes and so that's the opening image and it's kind of like this thing that historic books do sometime where it's like winking at you like we know like this is where Mm -hmm. it all comes from and this is where it's going but it is weird that her brother is like a quasi adult is like no one can tell like mom and dad won't know like he 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 and it's like okay but you're doing this in your front yard so like what are you really trying to hide 
I think it's also interesting, like, we had mentioned in the last book that it felt sort of like, you know, Chekhov's mosquito, that, like, we knew this was coming, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we knew that at least one brother or one uncle was going to get very ill. We suspected correctly that Mademoiselle O'Shawn was going to get sick, which is confirmed by the end of this book. Oof. We felt like other stuff was going to come back with the orphans. And, you know, part of what Cecile is experiencing is she has this whole other life where she's visiting the orphanage. She's seeing more children without parents and part of what I think they're trying to do with her is show how being a child gives her access to spaces that her parents aren't in because of their class privilege and then to Mm. contrast that with Marie Grace who has a different experience because of her whiteness but I think part of what comes out in this book is I never really feared that her brother was going to die. And the second we learned that their maid, Ellen, was not doing yep. well, I was like, she's gone. The like, minute she was, questioned. the minute she went down with yellow fever, I was like, oh, so we're going to kill she's her. Out. Okay, got yeah. it. Got it. Yeah. We get a kind of heavy hint of this in a discussion between Cecile and her father, page 37, where he's explaining sort of what's going on. And he's talking about how newcomers uh, coming to the city are dying by the hundreds every day. And they're kind of having this conversation about what's going back and forth. One of my favorite moments probably that we've had in a book in a while is when she gets a note from her friend Agnes, who in like classic Agnes American Girl fashion, is like, I'm sure that you're bored without me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, to quote like a line on a OkCupid profile my friend showed me, like Agnes kind of writes in a platonic way and says like, if yellow fever doesn't take you out, can I? Like she's yes. like, do you want to hang after this? Like, I bet you miss me. And everyone, and she's like, I kind of don't. Like Cecile's like, who? Like, or like, why is this person writing to me? Yeah, it's interesting because between Cecile and Marie Grace, we have overlap in timeline, right? Like, we're back in the orphanage. Mm -hmm. We're kind of experiencing the same things. And I think this is such a pattern in a lot of these books. The parents kind of becoming increasingly clueless as these books were published later and later. I think back to, like, the relationship that Addie has with her mother, or frankly, even Kirsten has with her mother. These, like, beautiful, touching moments And in this book, I kind of got the impression that Cecile's mom had no idea what was going on with anyone or anything. Like, I don't see a closeness there. And it's kind of like only Cecile is even aware that Ellen has the number of siblings that she has. Yeah, that's really interesting because I kind of had a similar thought, which is like not just that the mom doesn't really seem to clock what's going on with her own employees and their families. But even in her own family, like, there's this isolation of, like, Armand mm. gets yellow fever. Spoiler alert. We'll get there. And he gets isolated in the sick room from which Cecile is kept initially. But to me, this is a story about Cecile being isolated from her whole family. And, yeah. like, Armand may be in the sick room for part of it, but he's clearly tapped into the conversations that the mom and the aunt are having about, like, perhaps past nursing they've done when former outbreaks like there's a really interesting scene where Cecile's outside with him and she's kind of catches them speaking indoors like the mom and the aunt about like well what are we going to do if this turns into an outbreak 
And she's really like straining to eavesdrop, which is like relatable content when you're a child and you're dying to hear like an adult conversation about something that you think might be interesting. And then she gives herself away by stepping on something and making a sound and they go out. But like, that's the whole book. Like every adult in her life is like, well, like we, we're gonna have this like private conversation over here. And if you directly ask us questions, we're gonna lie to you. Yeah, and she kind of drops knowledge that she was part of basically a scheme with her friend to protect Philip in their minds and that she kind of pulled off the okay. same thing. That was a crazy scene. And it's it's treated in a very kind of funny and I would say almost a light way where they're like, Cecile, what like as if she was talking about a pack of gum. Like it really yes. is treated very the tonal shifts between this book and book two, I thought was very, very striking. Yes. Because I felt very much invited into her world in book two in a way that I really enjoyed. And I felt a little bit like with these books, there are plot points that both characters are expected to hit. So it doesn't really matter like what else might be going on to develop them as people. It's like baby on doorstep, yellow fever epidemic, potential death of brother, fear of loss of uncle's fiance. And I think back to like where we were when these books started to come out more than 20 years prior, Samantha got to put on a pink striped dress and eat ice cream in her fourth right. book. Like I'm not saying there were right. not other difficulties for these people, but I think sometimes in these later books, the trauma is put in to like ramp up the drama when actually I think there was like sufficient drama in other birthday books because the birthday is canonically the fourth kind of installment I'm like how did we get here how did we get here and instead of like celebrating them specifically getting older and perhaps maturing in some way maybe not in some cases Instead, this is a book that reminds us of her youth and of how that separates her from everyone else in her life. There's just like, there's a lot of um, redirections in this book away from things that are actually going on. And, you know, like when we think about yellow fever and the outbreak in 1853 in New Orleans, like there's a lot that's not in this book about that. So bizarrely, something this book really reminded me of. So Cecile is asked to do lots of tasks she's never been asked to do before in the home, largely because their maid is dying. Like that that is part of what's going on. And people are telling her different reasons, different stories. My family and I were reminiscing the other day about taping movies off the television. And you Mm. would tape like a hot movie off of... TNT or another channel so you could keep watching it over and over. And one of our favorite movies to watch was Dirty Dancing. And our version of Dirty Dancing was very short because my mother stopped it every time she thought there was a scene that we should not be watching. (laughs) I love that. Or when we were watching live on television and there was a scene she thought we shouldn't be watching, I always had to get my parents a drink. And sometimes they'd be like, you guys have a drink. And they'd be like, nope, we need another one. I'd have to fill up their soda. And I felt a bit like that's what was happening with her, where they're like, look over here, not over here. And I think that's kind of interesting as a device to keep young readers away from some of the difficulties. And I'm, Mm. I'm not judging it as a choice, but I think that's the effect that's achieved. Like, I did not know major plots of the film Dirty Dancing until I was probably 25. And I was I was stunned by the whole medical subplot because my version did not include that. The abortion wasn't in there. 
the, that was not in there. The mm-hmm. fact that one of the characters was like struggling and the fact that baby's father has to help her and right. he does like really step up in that moment was not aware of that entire plot. Like Were I thought you- she had a stomach ache. Oh, God. No, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know what the rationale was behind that. Were you left wondering if baby does or does not get put in a corner? No, like, I knew that no one was supposed to put her in the corner as far as, like, other aspects of her relationships. Those were all a mystery to me. But there were central plot points. I was like, wow, they really seem to hate Robbie, um, who is the, you know, kind of an antagonist. But I didn't know why. Interesting. Wow. That's, you know, that really, like, changes things, I guess. Or maybe it doesn't for you. Oh, it does. It, well, you you watch films you think you've seen and you realize you've missed entire plots. I feel like Cecile had the adult equivalent of like someone turning off the VCR. Like she gets close yeah. to learning what's happening and it's like, no, 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 look over here. And for me, that kind of explains some of the other gaps we have in the story. Like, why are there so many single people in this household? Like, where are the other people that were there at some point who are now not there? Like her uncle? Like her uncle, like her grandmother. Like, we have these kind of, like, passing references, but you don't really know how that family came to be. Mm. And I think one of the hallmarks of, like, a really good American girl book is you felt like you were in Addie's family. Like, right. you felt like, even though you only met some of the siblings and the father in book one, you felt that tension and that draw the entire series. Mm. Like, that was one of the central arcs that you're building toward. And even if you're not terribly impressed by someone like a Lars in the Kirsten book or, like, Josefina's sisters they're very real to you. Like, you, right. you know who's missing and why. I think the back and forth, it's like we've still only had really a 100-something pages of character development on each girl. And I, frankly, I think a lot of pages that replay scenes from a different perspective, which is just not a thing that I enjoy in fiction. I think that's that's totally fair. Yeah, I don't really know. To me, this is not this is like a failed experiment. This model of an American Girl series, it's not really working for me because you know, it tells you enough to be dangerous or to get interested and then you leave hungry for more. And a lot of great books mm-hmm. leave you hungry for more of time in that imaginary world or with these characters. And it's not really that kind of hunger that I'm feeling. It's more like I would love to know basic information about these people that we just don't get to because of a need to pivot and show us from Marie Grace's perspective. So for but what's interesting too is like, would it take that much effort to give us a scene in which grandpa, you know, expresses some grief or longing or just like a, a passing memory of his now deceased wife or of the aunt thinking a similar thought about the uncle or just like some reference at all? It's like these people, it's not even like they've passed. It's like their memory has also been repressed. I think that's why it's so fascinating. Like, I think Samantha is probably the best example of this. Like, the lingering loss of her parents and her grandmother's inability or lack of desire to talk about it is a central driving force, actually, in her fourth books, or sorry, her fifth book's drama. I think I'm just sort of, like, longing for more Cecile or more Marie Grace. Mm -hmm. I do think, to your point, this is an experiment. I was thinking about this, like, getting ready for the show today, and what kept coming up in my mind 
mind was by this point, they had tried making friends fully realized separate characters. Like I think Elizabeth was one of the first that really kind of broke off to be a big friend from the Felicity books. Sadly, they never bothered with Josefina. They were like, she gets a $35 goat. We're not going. Mariana is never happening. Kaya gets a dog. They really don't push any further with that. With these two, I think it was an earnest attempt. Like, they knew they had War of 1812 coming up. Mm -hmm. They were like, we're going there with Caroline. It's going to happen. This came out in summer of 2011. And I think the notion of like setting it deep in an epidemic felt novel, which totally respect that. They didn't know what was coming in the next decade. And I was thinking about what was big in that moment. And I think part of what's happening here is like, this was the Katy Perry, Rihanna, Britney kind of reinventing era. And I think this was really an attempt to show like a specific kind of like very youthful interracial friendship and people kind of like the color of friendship frankly the disney channel movie struggling through a thing Mm. but them as separate people i think you're kind of not buying full aspects of who they are because i feel like we're hitting checkpoints versus interior development points i don't know that i've ever thought so much about characters even ones that we haven't read before as these two because i'm like who are you like i'm actually really fascinated by how this family got to be where they are and i've never wanted side books on every person so much like what is up with the dad did his wife and you know marie grace's sibling actually die of disease i'm not convinced right like where is everybody I mean, I would love to know. I think for me, where I'm feeling disjointed with this book is kind of a continuation for something I've been feeling with the last couple of books, which is like when yellow fever is coming, like it's hinted at in the past couple of books. And there's even like what I understood as like passing reference to cholera and other epidemics that are also happening contiguous with this is the sense that like there's a conversation about the real fear of disease on a personal level like oh god i could get this Mm. but there's no conversation that would have happened about what they think is causing it or the groups on which it would be mapped and to me where that really comes out in this book is there is no reference in this book to enslaved people except to the um, orphanage for black children or formerly enslaved children which we don't visit. Like, so Cecile and her aunt go there, or they say that's on the list of errands Mm -hmm. they're running. And then we jump to a scene at Holy Trinity Orphanage, basically to reunite us with Marie Grace for what seems like a meaningless encounter. I'm also shocked. I'm looking for the specific place where we get the letter from uh, the friend, Agnes, who's like, you all must be so bored. She's at a plantation. I think it's really striking that like we kind of drop that Mm -hmm. and she says the country is just as hot as the city. I hate the mosquitoes. There are no parties. I feel a little bit like this is like poor Victorian rich girl is about to come out like that kind of vibe. Yeah. I'm pretty nervous for her. Like she's excited about a new dress. She's talking about a lemonade sip, you know, so I'm sure everybody's sharing cups at this point. Don't feel great about that. I'm really nervous and like I love honestly kind of the reaction we get from Cecile where she crumples up the note and she's like over it. She's so out of my vibe. She doesn't care about me. She doesn't care about what I have going on. 
why is she outside of the city? Like, what's motivating that move? Because it's something we've seen in other books and that we know happened in real life. Did they take her to a place that's possibly worse off? I mean, that's my guess. But see, that would make sense in the time if what you thought was causing this was uncleanliness that comes with or from immigrants and perhaps enslaved people. Like, that's the belief in the time period. So they're like, oh, we're removing ourselves from the city. But something that's not in this book is like, and this is not my content. This is from a historian whose name I like, I'm really gonna try to pronounce correctly, Catherine Olivarius at Stanford. And she has a book that's come out this year about yellow fever in New Orleans and, and really thinking about yellow fever and race. And a lot of her scholarship is really fascinating in just the sense that like disease created its own hierarchy in New Orleans and that that really mattered. And people would have understood that and tried to game the system in various ways. And I actually think the lack of understanding of that in this book matters because it shapes the story. Mm. So like importantly, she makes the point that um, that it was mapped onto immigrants and black people as being a cause. So that might explain why as a free black person, you would think removing yourself from the city and the congestion of it and the hygiene issues would keep you safe, even though you're actually moving towards a swamp and you're even more exposed because they didn't understand mosquitoes were the carriers. But something she says about slavery, which is kind of interesting, is that doctors in the South spread a lie that black people had a natural immunity to the disease. And so that was used to justify slavery. Um, But Um, Also, with that, immigrants were coming in and understanding that they were the cause and that actually gave you some cachet if you could point to a date when you had and survived yellow fever, which they understood to make you the only way to be immune, which is in this book. So people were like trying to awkwardly work into the conversation like, yeah, I had the fever like this year at this time and I lived. So then people would be like, oh, okay, you're fine. But when immigrants moved in, they quickly copped that this was something that could keep you from being hired. So some immigrants she writes about, specifically Irish immigrants, were seeking opportunities to get sick, to give themselves the edge in what was otherwise a competitive job market in New Orleans. So she says, this is her quote, it was so important to the social hierarchy of this place that people would say, you are an undocumented stranger or you are an acclimated citizen. So you wanted to be able to say like, I'm an acclimated citizen and be able to point to a recent experience when you had and survived yellow fever. So Ellen didn't get that memo. No, and I mean, obviously she's the one who's like done all of the work. It's fascinating that like acclimated, like there's two words. I started reading some primary sources written by doctors, like pretty much in the wake of this where people were trying to make sense of it. And acclimated is definitely the word that they use over and over. And the word that we don't really talk about, but I think actually captures something of the way that they understood this is pestilence. Like the word pestilence Mm. comes up all the time. Um, And there's like exact phrasing from a primary source believing themselves acclimated. Like that was kind of the understanding um, that people had at the time of how they might be able to get through this. Mm. I, I think something that happens, and I don't know how skeptical to be of it and how much I'm just reading it through the past two years. The peek into the past is very much about this as being a universal experience and being a kind of shared experience. And I think the reality is of the 10,000 who die, the 30,000 who get ill, my historian brain just says there's no way. Mm-hmm. There's 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 no way. 
And I think what's kind of um, a really, really intriguing moment from our perspective is that there is a day of prayer and fasting basically declared in the community um, from on high. And this is where we have an opportunity to connect Marie Grace and Cecile. And they see the men who taunted Cecile's grandfather in the store. And she has this moment of empathy and sympathy for them making the assumption that they're there because they've lost someone. And she kind of changes the way that she thinks about them. And I can't help but just be like extremely skeptical Mm. of that entire representation and also kind of feeling like we have lost, you know, basically at least a million people worldwide. Obviously, the the figure is, is much higher. And after the New York Times ran the first incalculable loss front page out of the 100,000, we have had nothing like this. Mm-hmm. Like we have had kind of very small moments. So I guess in a city that was as divided and hierarchical and race, you know, divided as it was, I'm I'm questioning this scene and this representation of peek into the past. Um, they talk about the remarkable calm and courage that people displayed. I kind of just don't buy it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I don't either, because I think they also don't talk about like the exploitation that happens in these moments and the panic and the panic that would lead to violence or i mean there's that scene of like the tar burning on the street like in mm-hmm. barrels because they believed it would like cleanse the air of disease and you know that is a real thing that happened obviously ineffective but you know thinking about the this perception this lie that black people are immune to yellow fever it's sort of that would add an interesting dynamic or pressure to the mom and aunt saying like we may volunteer as nurses or you know like what role they're going to play in the cities dealing with this pandemic and how they will be how those motivations will be read or what will be mapped onto their you know uh participation and like when does their class matter less than their race or their gender and how does that all come together in a very convenient understanding of race as something that makes you immune to a disease when folks need help dealing with the sheer like you know range and and scale of this you know because it's like we had that really chilling scene with grandpa walking down the street with cecile a couple Mm -hmm. books ago and he gets mistaken as um an enslaved person by two white guys in the candy shop and we see them in the cathedral in this book in the day of prayer and Mm -hmm. fasting and i just couldn't help but wonder you know are there more moments of like violence on the street perpetrated by these guys and people like them who are conveniently like either you know, co-opting black people into service or, you know, like blaming them for the epidemic at the same time. Like we, Cecile and her family are completely untouched by that. Like the drama of the pandemic for them is on the family level. And that's totally understandable, but it's like, there probably would be these other contextual things happening that they would be worried about too. And even with Marie Grace's dad coming into their house, there's no like, you know conversation about race like he's just like a completely cool like race blind physician who comes into their house to care for armand and ellen and i wonder about that too like the contextualization of that encounter well he's the equivalent of the mean girl's cool mom he's like i'm not a regular doctor i'm I'm a a cool cool doctor doctor. yeah so i will unquestioningly care for anyone because we've established in book one that he will care for black patients Mm -hmm. right because he takes care of the boy whose arm has been injured 
I think part of what comes out of this, which I think does unfortunately ring very true with how a lot of people have gone through this pandemic now, is when we get through like kind of the the end of this story, there is a very kind of like quick-ish resolution where Armand lives and Ellen does not. Mm-hmm. And there's a conversation where Mr. Gardner has to be the one to say like, you know, Armand will be fine, but there is bad news. And he says, Ellen has died. And Marie Grace has this kind of, sorry, uh, Cecile has this kind of reflection over the next few pages where she's bringing up the fact that Ellen is one of 10 children. And she kind of says, you know, um, he's alive and Ellen isn't. Two pages later, yellow fever had changed everything. And I think I, I can only kind of, again, think of the word skeptical, like what did it actually change for this family? Because mm-hmm. honestly, I don't think anyone knew much about Ellen. So I'm not questioning that they are sad, but I think the fact that Armand lives means that yellow fever will become like a small chapter in their life and it will not become like the tragedy that it is for Ellen or her family. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's also like you can just I really feel for Ellen and her family in those scenes in large part because you see how distant Cecile and her family are from the loss. Even as they grieve her, they're like you pointed out off air, the mom is like, "Oh, like Cecile's like, did you know she was one of 10?" and the mom is like, "Hmm. No. Hmm. Didn't know that. Interesting." And then there's like a from nowhere line that's like, "And just so we're clear, I did send her brother her Bible and her, you know, subsequent wages." So, just so in case you're wondering if I'm a bad person, like I did that. But it's interesting that we don't see any of like the grief culture playing out that you know may have happened like photography becoming more popularly available like there are these really haunting images of children in new orleans whose parents had paid to have their photo taken while they were sick in case they died not saying you would do that for your servant but i think the fact that you wouldn't do that means that their loss and their the ability to grieve them is going to be really severely limited to what the family is willing to share out with her siblings. But you also had to know Ellen was going to die when Cecile goes to her bedside and she's like, I had a dream I was an angel. And you're like, "Mm, uh uh-oh. Yeah. When she started talking about how she just wanted to kind of be an angel, I think there was a lot about Ellen that was very much in line with tropes about servants in the 19th century, Mm. like stories about servants as kind of like the sacrificial death within the family. I was reading reviews and uh, one review that I came across, I think presents a kind of interesting counter because this isn't sort of the culture that we grew up in. We did not grow up in New Orleans. And I read a review from a person who identified as being from South Louisiana, um, raising children overseas, um, a half Cajun person, and saying that like this book made them feel like home. Like this book made Mm. them feel like they were back home with the heat, the humidity. Um, And they kind of talked about how like this is a representation they didn't think they would ever see uh, in American Girl, but the little details, the French expressions really made them feel like comfortable, like made them feel like their kind of history and their background was being represented. I wonder so much about the need to set this in 1853. Like I wonder Mm. what conversation precipitated that. And I kind of sometimes long for the American girl stories that are just straight up vibes. 
Like, so many of the very early American Girl stories are both, like, set with a historic backdrop, but those things are are almost barely relevant at times, and we're caught up in very, like, little girl or, like, childhood adolescent drama, Um, and I just felt like the need to get to the summer of Yellow Fever drove so much of how we got through these first four books. Like, it's been hinted at so, so heavily, and I just wonder, like, what was the meeting like where someone said, like, this has to be set in the summer of 1853? I've been thinking about that, actually, because it is sort of puzzling why this is happening, and I don't really have a hard and fast answer, but just sort of a guess off the top of my head, and I don't know what you make of this, so I'd love your thoughts, but... You know, to set Samantha in 1904 means we get to have, her, like, her, you know, moment is labor and suffrage. So she's going to wade into both of those things. She's not going to wade into Teddy Roosevelt or any, like, national politics happening. With this, it's like, did we pick a medical epidemic so we wouldn't have to talk about politics? Even though medicine is political, like, not to make an obvious point, but it's like, even in talking about medicine, like this book in particular goes way out of its way to not discuss race. Yeah. And I think there are times where like the epidemic is supposed to just be kind of background or almost prologue to what's happening. But to me, it completely takes over. Like it's kind of a character in the story. And I don't know that Ellen needed to die. I'm disappointed that Ellen died. And I think just being completely honest with you, I think the representation of her was really kind of strange. Like, I think in a world where Nellie exists, I was kind of surprised by how one-dimensional Ellen is, which might be very much, like, true to their experience. But then to have Cecile sort of hand-wringing and saying, like, everything has changed, I think that a lot of this doesn't actually really, because her brother lives, doesn't really like come to an emotional climax until she sees her friend again, they're able to sort of grieve together, and they learn that their teacher is ill. And Mm. I think that's when this really becomes more of an acute crisis for the two of them. But I don't know that without that scene, I'd really be convinced that it changed like she takes on other responsibilities in the home but you don't really get the sense that there's like that much else going on for her yeah I could be wrong I know I think that's an important point because it kind of speaks to how they've chosen to attempt um or to pr- represent um pandemics here which is that like disease is this great like equalizer that's the I right. think the approach of this book and peek into the past really gets at that When, of course, like I would say it reveals the opposite, that this kind of reveals the hierarchy, various hierarchies in the city, racial, class and otherwise. And so it doesn't really resonate with Cecile to have us walk through this experience with her, because as you point out, she doesn't experience this loss or the pandemic in the same way. Like she has not lost a family member. You know, she cared for Ellen, but it's not the same relationship. And so I think that that's why it doesn't really hit as hard because you're like until the teacher because then you're like, oh, we've been set up to know that she cares for this person. And we've been with this. We've seen that develop over a couple of books. But I also think like I agree with you about that Ellen's portrayal is disappointing because Ellen is totally in isolation, like before the sick room. And even when she's dying and it's clear she's dying. There's no one else in her life that emerges. Like, there's no, like, friend. There's no, like, other servant from a different house who comes over and is like, oh, my God, like, we immigrated together. Like, I know her from some cultural group. It's like 
she is truly alone and she dies alone and that's it didn't we also kind of get the setup to this as a kind of cautionary tale with a maid quitting marie grace's family yeah wow annie so if you if you read novels that feature domestic servants in the 19th century there is almost always a moment of crisis where the female servant commits an error of some kind and it can be minor or it can be serious or like sex work was often kind of put into these stories like that that would be perceived as sort of like where this person got off on a a track and it always ends in death i mean you know that's a cautionary tale for you it's can you believe that this was made in the same world and the same year as rolling in the deep by adele and firework by Katy perry I feel like we did all of those things in 100 pages in this book. I'm serious. Wow. I mean, this book did make me feel like a plastic bag. (laughs) Whatever that line is. I also, the the peek into the past tells us people refuse to give in to panic. I'm so, like, weary of these kinds of generalizations because I've seen what people do when we don't have toilet paper. And if you think that people in the past were fundamentally different we'll link to some primary sources from this period. They just weren't. Like, they weren't Yeah. Um, that different from us. And I, I'm sort of, like, in my head, the thing of, like, people being acclimated. We have the same conversations now when people say, well, I've already had COVID, right? Yeah. It's a reflex. You can't help yourself because you're trying to make other people comfortable or make yourself comfortable about a reality. And also, like, seeing the ways that people try to capitalize on other people's panic, like the fake cures that, you know, President Trump was um, promoting at the early stages of the pandemic remind me a lot of things happening in New Orleans during this outbreak of physicians who were like, yeah, I'm selling this magic cure for yellow fever, like this preventative tonic. And this was, as I said in our previous episode, one of the first states and only states in the South to um, enforce licensure for physicians back to the 1830s. Mm. But that didn't stop licensed physicians from trying to sell like crazy crap to like people who had genuine fear for their lives and for their families. So, you know, that's another thing that I think kind of resonates is like the emotional panic is real, like for toilet paper and everything else. But mm. then also this really awful desire to take advantage of people in those moments. Did Dr. Gardner give the Ray family a bill? Well, I thought you were going to say, did he give them actual medicine? Or what, you know, was it like I a placebo? I think he did his best with Ellen. I yeah. think I think he tried. I don't know that he gave the same effort that we got with Armand because I think he sees a future for Armand and his brother-in-law. But, like, I think that's a separate Do you think that he sent a bill or was he, like, happy with the breakfast that he was offered on the way out the door? No, I don't think the breakfast was enough. I think he knows what this family's praline budget is, and he sent a bill. I don't believe. I also, yeah, I don't believe he did that pro bono. I think the housekeeper at the Gardner house is a little bit more on top of the finances, and like she's asking questions about what about like artichokes. So, you know, the dad wants Marie Grace to be getting this, like, high-class education but doesn't seem to want to charge anyone. I'm going to be completely serious with you. I think this whole series is a parable set in the time of the Affordable Care Act controversy. That's all I'm going to say. Wait, tell me more. That's all, no. Wait, that's it? <laughs> no, I think, like during the first and the second Obama presidency, how much of the conversation about him and his legacy, people who didn't want to talk about race, made it about the Affordable Care Act. Here we are with these books. 
here we are with these books all these wow. years later. Interesting. Yeah. But, you know, in the same sense, it's like talking about care does point to questions of race. So maybe that's your point. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's it's pretty bleak stuff. It's pretty bleak stuff. And I'm happy that this book is over is all I can say. Yeah, we're headed back to Marie Grace next. She looks kind of happy and Cecile looks happy. Can we just say, though, that it's like this is not a balanced friendship and Marie Grace no. has not been told that. But like here we go through another book with Cecile where she's basically like, huh, when she oh. stumbles on Marie Grace, she's like, huh, oh, right, Marie Grace. Oh, wow. Hey, how are you? And it's yeah. just sort of like, oh, like when she's in front of me, she's on my mind. But that's about it. And meanwhile, like we know from Marie Grace, that's not how it is. I also, I'll be candid with you, it may have been my particular reading of this book. I really did not fully, fully grasp how Dr. Gardner went from nonstop patient workload to dropping everything for this family. It's hard to say, except if she was like, Dad, this is my best friend. And then and he, he shows like, up, wow, he's okay. like, wow, hmm, you have a friend? And <laughs> then he's like, how come the housekeeper didn't tell me? And she was like, she was sleeping. This book, this entire sh- series would be called While She Was Sleeping. Yeah, I think that's a true. A lot happened. I think that's true. I just hope those kids at the orphanage turn out okay. I hope that Philip has a good life. I don't know where he is now. I don't think he'd still be with us, but I like to hope the best for everyone. You know what? He escaped. I would love the peace of Philip, who got to escape New Orleans before this pandemic. Yeah. And before Armand tries to... Oh, yeah, we forgot that part. But at the end of the book, when Armand's fever breaks or whatever, and he's going to make it... She's like, Dad, like, she starts to kind of share the, about his painting. He's like, don't think I didn't see the, like, his painting. And his instructor wrote to me from Paris. And it's like, oh, okay, like, fine. Also, he was doing this in the front yard, so it's not really like you columboed your way through this. But, okay. This family needs to have a meeting about what they think is a secret and what <laughs> is not actually a secret. Because right. I think they're... In much the same way that Marie Grace had to learn at her music lesson that her teacher was marrying her uncle, like I think everyone rough. could I'm still thinking about to have <laughs> a few more conversations. I think everyone would kind of benefit from that. I also want to say some of my French knowledge came in clutch while reading this book. There is a point where Cecile is called a bon fille, which is a good girl, and I did know that. Wow, so. see, I didn't know that. Thanks, didn't know yeah, that. So Agnes, wow. not a bon fille. I'm, I'm. I'm advanced enough at this point that I have re-downloaded Duolingo to my phone. Have I opened the app yet? No. But I'm no. thinking about it. So that's where I'm at. I I won't be required. No, I'm not doing that. This is where I got worth like I had multiple Spanish teachers in high school who had a major life event. And in order to distract them from making us do work, I threw them a shower or a party. Like I had a teacher my first year who was having her first child and I organized a, a baby shower for her. And you know, like that was very fun community building opportunity. Did I ultimately pay the price for that? Yes. I watched Destinos for six years and I learned a lot about like the basic function of Spanish soap operas made for children to learn how to speak Spanish. I would say I'm functional at reading Spanish. Every now and then I'll scroll through radio stations and a Spanish station will come up and I'll say, yep, I am not proficient. And then I carry on with my day. Honestly, Destinos was like the love of my Spanish class life. And I still can somebody please just write to us and tell us how it ends. 
No, I don't ever want to know. But yeah, I don't know. Okay, like, right tell to me, We're gonna have to and then I'll hold ends. on to that knowledge, and then when you want to know, <laughs> I'll tell you. But I need to know. Okay. It's like, did she find her dad? I don't know. <sighs> All right. Well, okay. Somebody write to me because I need to know. So if people need to tell you the ending of Destinos, where Which do they, they find you? they absolutely do. Please find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney or on Twitter at Mary Mahoney 123 You can write to me. You you can share Destinos tea. I can handle it. You can write to me at Allison Horrocks on either platform. Mary, we also, we wished a young person a like happy, like birth, birthday. We did also have a request for another kind of birthday wish. Okay, listening. It's not either of us. We weren't born in this time of year. Oh, we're we're not even. I still have to do my countdown to Leo season, but we're we're not close enough yet. We we are not remotely there. So our friend Michelle has asked us to wish her friend Wendy a happy birthday. This is her birthday season. We won't actually share uh, what time of year. Michelle is a Molly. Guess what her friend Wendy is? Wow, um, Samantha. She is Samantha, and she refurbishes dolls who need love. She's part of our Patreon. She's on our Discord, and we would absolutely be thrilled to wish her a happy birthday. Happy birthday, girl. So excited for you. I'm sorry we couldn't cover a happier birthday book as part of our wishes to you, but, like, we wish you a much happier birthday than everything contained in this book. I wish for you the peace and the joy of a Frosty Chino from Mm. Wendy's. Um, Yes. Sharing a name with a fascinating and fabulous American institution, like, what a gift. God bless. I don't know what your relationship with that is. Like, maybe you're annoyed with people making that connection. If so, I apologize. But I just want to say, it's like, I want you to have the best 2022. I want you to have a great day, a great time, a great birthday season. Party like you're a Leo. Don't ask for permission. Just do it. (laughs) Have a Frosty Chino. Call out sick from work. Um, Do what needs doing. That's my wish for you. And happy birthday. And happy birthday. And God bless two friends, one who's a Molly and one who's a Samantha, like peacefully coexisting. Wow. It can happen. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being part of our Patreon community and the Discord. For anyone not with us there, it's a really great opportunity to kind of meet other like-minded people, make friends as an adult, which is sometimes feels like the impossible dream. And it's one of the few nice corners of the internet left with us. We do a lot of fun stuff there, have great conversations there. Sometimes do watch-alongs. We have an extra episode a month that you can Mm -hmm. request. So it's a really great space. Thank you, everyone, on that note for listening. We so appreciate all of you, and we will see you on our next episode.